Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here at the Andrew Lawton Show on True. I like moved my mic really aggressively before the show and I was hoping it would stop bouncing by the time the camera went on me and it didn't. So if you were watching the camera wondering like, why is that mic just like moving around independently of the guy talking into it? That's why it's not that I'm blowing so much hot air. It is uh, ambulatory all by itself. It is in fact uh, the case of me just being like very haphazard with my hands in the uh, exciting, riveting pre-show moments, which maybe we'll have to like package up as an after-hour special at some point to True North Insiders, which you could be if you head on over to donate.tnc.news. Later on in the show, I have a bit of an exciting announcement about something that is going on for me and for this program next week. Also going to be chatting a little bit later on in the show about this uh, conference coming up this weekend that sadly I could not make it to, dedicated to free speech in medicine, which I think before a few years ago, you might not have thought necessary, but certainly is. And this is, I believe, the second time these groups, medical professionals, doctors, students will be descending on an idyllic Nova Scotia town and discussing solving the worlds of the problem. No, the problems of the world. Uh, Solving the worlds of the problem will be at their next conference. But uh, one thing I wanted to get to today as we wind down another week is the big picture of a lot of the discussions we've been having on this show about anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, the attacks on Israel, and the rhetorical battles being waged in North America as a result. And I won't play the clip for you, but there was a chilling video you may have seen circulating yesterday of students at a university in the United States that were basically locking themselves in a library as protesters pounded on the doors wanting to get in. Now, when I say uh, students, I should point out I'm referring to Jewish students who were literally being hidden, hidden in the library because there were rabid anti-Jewish students that were attacking and assaulting uh, what most people would argue is the bounds of civility. Now, what they would have done if they had got in and were face-to-face with these Jewish students, I have no idea. One of the students said in an interview, it felt a lot like being told to go hide in the attic, a la Anne Frank and the Holocaust. We've had people that have looked at what happened at that Toronto restaurant, uh, Cafe Landwer, and said it seems a lot like Kristallnacht. It seems a lot like uh, the shades of European anti-Semitism in the 1930s. And a lot of the people that we talk to on this show when it comes to free speech will take the view that I do, which is that heinous views, heinous forms of expression still deserve to be protected. But I would say that a lot of the rhetoric we're seeing pushes to the very limit of that, if not goes over it. Now, as you know, I am a free speech absolutist. I believe in as about as high a bar as you can have in a free society for freedom of speech. And I believe that the criminal code approach that we have in Canada is probably the best way of doing this. So no, I'm not being hypocritical when I turn around and say, well, that might not actually fit within normal free speech. It's because the speech itself is so extreme, it goes into territory where it is threatening in nature, which is to say the free speech is compromising the freedoms and rights of others, which is about the only time that I believe one's own rights should be curtailed. Now, all of this is to say right now, we're seeing 
people twist themselves into knots. Now, there are some people on the right that are normally normally defenders of free speech that I think are being very inconsistent on this. And I, I've criticized several Jewish groups in Canada for, I don't feel, being sufficiently desiring to protect free speech. But I would say there's far more hypocrisy on the left. People who do not particularly care about civil liberties and fundamental freedoms normally, but when it comes to them facing consequences for calling for death to the Jews, are all about wrapping themselves in the charter and saying, oh, but free speech, freedom of expression, my rights, in ways that they don't else, uh, elsewhere. Now, one notable example of this is the BC Civil Liberties Association. Now, it has civil liberties in the name, but when the BCCLA, the BC Civil Liberties Association, calls itself the BC Civil Liberties Association, it's not actually because there is a commitment to civil liberties. It's just branding. I mean, it would be like if I were to call myself the skinny guy show. I can say that, but that's really not believable. And anyone that were to look at the show would say that doesn't actually fit with what you're offering to people. In the same way, the BCCLA is not offering anything civil or anything focused on liberty. You may recall its former executive director a couple of years ago was the one who was cheering the torching of churches across the country. Burn it all down was what its executive director at the time, Harsha Walia, said. Now, Harsha Walia is no longer with the organization, so she is unshackled from the expectations of her board. And it means she can make comments like this. How intense is the spirit to get free? How embarrassing idea. How is the spirit to get free? How deep is the spirit to get free? How beautiful is the spirit to get free? That Palestinians bulldoze down the apartheid wall. Yeah. We're so back, folks. Palestinians raised to the ground one of the most potent symbols of oppression and apartheid and colonialism in the world today, reminding us all Sean was just like commenting on how obnoxious the video guy is. Sean's a videographer, so he has no tolerance for a videographer that injects their own commentary into the thing they're filming. Yeah, he was obnoxious, but no, no, no. No one was as obnoxious there as Harsha Walia. How beautiful is the spirit to get free that they paraglided into Israel, that they learned to hang glide. How uh, beautiful is the spirit to get free that they uh, bulldoze the apartheid wall. I would have actually loved to have heard the uncut speech. I can just imagine Ms. Walia uh, sitting around working through all the drafts. I don't have any like prop paper that I can use saying, uh, how beautiful is the spirit to get free that they beheaded those babies. No, no, that line's not going to work. Uh, how beautiful is the spirit to get free that they kidnapped and raped those teenagers? Oh, you know, Matt, that might not go over very well. Uh, how beautiful is the spirit to get free that they held those elderly people hostage and murdered them in cold blood? Uh, 
It's a little on the nose, don't you think? Okay, all right. We'll go with hang gliding and bulldozing. That, that's, that's uncontroversial, right? Like, what a disgusting, despicable human being. And not just her. She's the one that said the words. Uh, she was getting cheered, though. Did you hear the outcry of support for her when she talks about the beauty of this? Now, she is a particularly radical person, and I would actually have very little doubt that she holds the Jewish people, at least those living in Israel, in a great deal of contempt. And, and she is very much celebrating the acts that Hamas took, which were part of an orchestrated attack that killed 1,500 Jews in Israel, the vast majority of whom were civilians. This is not just a, well, you know, we need to look at both sides and it's a complicated struggle. This is outright celebration. It's beautiful in her eyes. Like I, when I, you know, I, I'm not going to call myself the most romantic person. And my, my wife and I celebrated our anniversary recently. And I, I don't, again, would not say that I'm like the best husband or the most romantic person. But I don't recall like with the vows being like, you're so beautiful, you remind me of Palestinian terrorism. Like that's not actually a line in the Hallmark section of your drugstore when you're getting cards that you see often. Like you don't actually, like men, normally I'm not going to give you marriage and dating advice, but you're as beautiful as Palestinian terror is not the line that you want to give to your beloved. Unless, of course, you're going out with Harsha Walia, in which case that's probably the greatest compliment you could bestow upon a woman. But here is the problem that we have with this, is that here's a, a woman representing an organization formerly that stood up supposedly for civil liberties, but was uninterested in civil liberties. Now, I don't believe that she should be censored. I do not believe that she should be facing any criminal or civil sanction for what she said. I think she said it, she has a right to, and I have the right to condemn it. But it's interesting that when people like her are attacked, and we've seen this from a number of them in recent weeks, they like to shroud themselves in a right to free speech and freedom of expression that they are not prepared to extend to others. Let's just look at the BC Civil Liberties Association, for example, which has been a big champion of including gender in the BC Civil, the BC Human Rights Code. Now, these provisions are ones that let the BC Human Rights Tribunal go after you if you use the wrong pronoun for someone. If you provide a name that is in identification with their biological sex rather than their chosen or preferred gender. So these people will police your pronouns, but uh, so you can't, uh, you know, if you don't want to call your colleague Zim, Zer, Ziz, uh, you are uh, a big hater and off with your head. But if you want to chant death to the Jews, oh, well, freedom of speech. You know, that's just your right there to say and do what you want. And to look at the BC Civil Liberties Association in a bit more detail, this is a so-called civil liberties group that, believe it or not, defended vaccine passports. Now, this was a section from a, a policy document they put out. I'll share two with you, but the first one, uh, Sean, is the one that starts with broadly speaking. This is them explaining Broadly speaking, speaking, given the widespread and devastating impact of COVID-19, the effectiveness and safety of COVID-19 vaccines, and the absence of an equally effective and less intrusive alternative, programs requiring proof of vaccination can be consistent with civil liberties and human rights principles. Okay. So are there any circumstances, I wonder, under which the BCCLA would have opposed vaccine passports? Well, let's go to guideline number nine. 
Proof of vaccination programs must avoid requiring two-spirit, trans, and non-binary individuals having to use government ID and legal documents that contain their dead names or inaccurate gender markers. So to the BCCLA, a vaccine passport is fine as long as it doesn't use your biological name. That would be that would be a road too far. Yeah, well, you know, having to have a vaccine passport to go to a restaurant, that's fine. Uh, calling yourself Timmy when you go by Tammy now, Oh, how dare you? Now, this is, I think, a very interesting dilemma. Now, let's talk about how the BCCLA has responded to the wave of protests and pushback against them in the last couple of days. This ostensible and self-proclaimed civil liberties organization put out a statement, which I'm not going to read in full, but you can see there that they are, in fact, disquieted by the growing chorus of statements from federal, provincial, and municipal government officials and politicians that risk conflating pro-Palestinian sentiments, criticism of the state of Israel, or calls for a ceasefire with expressions of hate and anti-Semitism. They're disturbed by the recent decision to silence Ontario member of provincial parliament Sarah Jama over comments she made in support of a ceasefire. Not exactly, by the way, an accurate uh, uh, distillation of what she said. Uh, more importantly, they are deeply concerned by the chilling effect that irresponsible statements and actions from government officials will have on the free exercise of charter-protected rights in Canada. So they talk about this in lengthy terms. And by the way, as I say, I support free speech. I support free speech for those who support Israel and for those who support Gaza. I support free speech for people who want to say very offensive or what I would view as intolerable things. But it is interesting that these activists only want to extend that freedom in one direction and are uninterested in defending freedom of speech at any other points in their existence. What does this all mean? There is a double standard afoot. Now, uh, many of you may say, oh my goodness, you've got them dead to rights. Well done, Andrew. You've called out the double standard. You've called out the hypocrisy. Yeah, I wouldn't get too excited about that because you see the left does not care. My dear late friend, Kathy Shadel, uh, once uh, had to write, uh, write me on this, not like, uh, you know, W-R-I-T-E, but R-I-G-H-T, because I was uh, so keen and so enthusiastic about pointing out, oh, I've got them, I've exposed these hypocrites, and she said, they don't care. And she summed it up in a very snappy slogan, as Kathy Shadel only could, which is, you know, liberals, it's different when we do it. And that is a bit of a nihilistic view of things, but it is an incredibly useful one because the left simply plays by different rules. If you expect them to defend and protect their own free speech rights just as much as yours, you are in for a rude awakening. If you expect them to uh, take the same level of condemnation to anti-Semitism as they do to Islamophobia, you are going to be in for a rude awakening. If you expect them to defend civil liberties equally and evenly without picking up uh, and defining freedom based on their own preferred pet groups and causes, you are, say it with me, in for a rude awakening. Uh, they are, I mean, they're, they're rude, they're not particularly awake, but you and I will have to be both.
And this is the fundamental problem. And I'd say it's the fundamental difference between the pro-free speech set and the anti-free speech set. And I should clarify, this is not just a left versus right issue. I think, generally speaking, the right is better on free speech, but not exclusively good. It was conservatives that first wanted to ban Holocaust denial in Canada, which I thought may be rooted in a noble place, but is fundamentally wrong. And it is many people on the left who are dwindling in number, but still exist, that have this principled defense of free speech that goes back to basically that Berkeley era of what the left used to be. So when I say the left and the right in this case, I realize it is a crude uh, distillation of groups that are not monolithic. But as we were talking about yesterday on the show with Joe Roberts, it's the left here that wants to uh, be convenient champions of free speech only when they want the freedom to shout out death to the Jews. But we'll go back to censoring anyone that, you know, misgenders Timmy or Tammy uh, once tomorrow comes along. Uh, and again, you know, if we were to see a bunch of students get out of school because they wanted to protest, uh, let's say, gender ideology in schools, we would hear denunciation from the teachers union that this was hate. Kids need to get in class. They shouldn't be protesting. But when you have a display like what's taking place in Toronto today, where students are sitting out class because they want to protest against Israel, uh, this has been met with very little condemnation from the TDSB. In fact, some people would say the Toronto District School Board is in fact sanctioning this. Sue Ann Levy, my colleague from True North, who's been on the cutting edge of this story uh, for years before anyone else was paying attention, joins me now. And she has a, a great piece up at True North uh, yesterday looking at this student walkout here. Let's just start there, Sue Ann. I mean, when students and their parents were protesting a couple of weeks back, uh, they were accused of being brainwashed. They were told to stay in school. They were told that uh, the schools had no tolerance for absence. Uh, when students want to sit home and call Israel an apartheid state, the TDSB is just clamming up. <laughs> Are they ever, Andrew? In fact, what they said in the note that came from Colleen Russell Rollins the education director yesterday is that uh, they don't approve of the walkouts and the walkouts are happening in several high schools, uh, mostly this afternoon. They don't approve of the walkouts, but um, they're free to walk out. And I'm thinking, okay, who is running the asylum these days? Because uh, what I have said on, you know, social media is that if the Toronto School Board had a firm expulsion and suspension policy, which they don't, they don't give out hardly any anymore, um, they could threaten the, the kids with this, say, you know, you walk out, you're going to be expelled or you're going to be suspended. So there, there are ways of dealing with them, but there are absolutely no consequences. And it leads me to believe that the senior executives at the Toronto School Board and the trustees sanction this. They, they, you know, they, they, they have no way of stopping them. Come on. Who's running the show? Well, and there was one school, uh, you mentioned this in your column yesterday, I believe it was the R.H. King Academy, where mm -hmm. the principal has agreed to move assignments or move quizzes right. to another day. So, I mean, what is that if not a, a tacit or I would even argue explicit endorsement of uh, absenteeism mm -hmm. on this day? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they basically are holding these kids' hands and saying, okay, you can walk out the door because we're going to make it super easy for you. And I would lay you a bet that absenteeism will be very high today in those schools, not even because they're planning to protest, but because they've gotten a free ride. I mean, this 
you know, aside from the fact that uh, this really um, disturbs me that these kids are protesting, being a very ardent Zionist and a member of the Jewish community in Toronto, um, and, uh, you know, the hate fests that have been going on are just appalling. Um, the It speaks to all the things that are wrong with the school system. You know, academics take a back seat to protest 101. And, you know, they, <laughs> I, I can't believe that they're allowing these kids just to walk out the door and do what they're doing. I mean, the only good thing is that it's raining today in Toronto. So, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, look, I take a view. I mean, I was never so fortunate as to have the parents that would pull me out of school for, uh, for, well, really for anything. I mean, I would have to be on my deathbed, I think. Whereas, <laughs> you know, like my brother, for example, has like taken their kids out, you know, to go on a vacation for a few days. And I'm like, Oh wow, I never got that growing up. And my brothers that <laughs> I know, but you know, so parents, I, I think who want to, for whatever reason, make a decision, for their kids obviously have that right. I mean, the schools are not able to go and round up the kids and, you know, drag them into school. But it's about the messages they're sending out. And, and you mentioned the, the TDSB education director. This is herself an activist. Now, I, I don't know if she's, uh, you know, commented on the Israel-Palestine issue in the past, but she's very much tried to inject a, a level of activism into the school board here. So I, you can make an argument that the schools are taking their cue from the director. It, well, certainly are. They certainly are in the senior executive team because I've written several stories about the fact that uh, even elementary schools or in particular elementary schools spend, uh, and not all, but many of them spend at least an hour a day doing something related to social justice or social emotional learning, uh, a buzzword for basically, you know, touchy feely stuff like steel drumming and uh, Hindu dancing and I mean, nothing to do with academics and the kids are getting further and further behind. But I mean, the director is an activist and the thing that's scary is that she's a proponent of critical race theory. Critical race theory by its very ideology is anti-Semitic. So you draw your own conclusions, Andrew. <laughs> Let me ask you, I mean, one theory that I have on this and I, I could be overcomplicating this is that the school is basically dealing with a bit of guilt over how it dealt with a lot of Muslim students and families during the parental rights approaches. I mean, everyone's heard yeah. that clip from that teacher in Edmonton berating the Muslim student Mansoor because, you know, Mansoor was, you know, giggling at the pride stuff. And uh, the teacher was very brazen about how transactional she thought diversity should be. It's like, you know, everyone else dealt with your Ramadan stuff. So now you need to deal with the trans pride stuff. And I, yeah. I wonder if what we're seeing now is a bit of an overcorrection, whereas the school is seeing uh, what's predominantly Muslim students students and families that are, are voicing all of their uh, issues with Israel and Zionism right now. And they're, they're like not wanting to uh, offend this particular group. I wish I could say that. But in 2021, uh, when I was still with Post Media, um, there was another insurrection in Israel. And uh, it wasn't as blatant as it is this time, but the anti-Semitism coming from the Toronto District School Board and from uh, particular, in particular, some really radical teachers and the teachers unions uh, was just as appalling. And uh, the uh, director, I don't believe she had come to the school board yet, but the, <laughs> she was about to start. This wasn't stopped back in 2021. And um, I don't know if you recall that I did several stories on Javier de Vila, uh, mm -hmm. a 
pro-Palestinian activist in the board, an equity worker who put out manuals that were grossly anti-Semitic. And um, they launched a petition against me for doing that. Uh, the teachers and the teachers unions and the Muslim association. So this has been going on for a while and it hasn't been, um, it's been sanctioned, it, you know, there, it's been enabled and uh, it's just in a larger scale now. And you see very much a pipeline of, of this, uh, you know, the ideology takes hold in, you know, in some cases as young as early elementary school into high school. And it's not all that surprising when you see what we've seen on university campuses, including my own alma mater of Western, I think McMaster and Hamilton, or it might have been McGill, that was the other one, where uh, students who looked Arab uh, were walking around ripping down posters that were uh, acknowledging hostages, of which there are still about 200 in Israel. So, uh, you know, that that dispenses with any pretense that this is about peace for all sides, when uh, these innocent hostages, who are innocent by any any interpretation of the word, uh, but are being acknowledged on posters are then getting ripped down by a, a number of students. Well, you know, again, uh, that is happening mostly on university campuses or by university students. Uh, I haven't seen instances of that actually happening in the board, but I mean, they're all part of the same group and uh, there are no repercussions. It's a very interesting um, Twitter handle called Stop Antisemitism. Mm -hmm. And the person has been really dogged about pointing out and naming and shaming some of these people. And some have lost their jobs. Some have lost their, um, well, many have lost their jobs, mostly in the States, but it's starting to happen here as well. Um, and I think that's what has to happen. These people have to be exposed because if we wait for our political leaders, if we wait for the police even, I mean, the police really have their hands full now. I mean, I, I walked by Bialik, which is a Jewish day school, yesterday and there's a command center there 24 7. i mean the resources that must be uh used being used right now in toronto uh i can only imagine the bill <laughs> that taxpayers are going to have to foot but um you know it's uh it's our weak political leaders that you know andrew i don't know if you heard that uh, there is going to be a bikers rally for hamas on the weekend they're going to go from pickering to yorkdale and go through the jewish community which in its sabbath i mean like who dreams up this stuff like are there that many jew haters and hamas lovers in this well, yeah, and, and that was the, the interesting thing, is that it didn't take long for the masks to come down. Like in the first couple of days of this, the most rabid anti-Semites had the wherewithal to keep their mouths shut. And I mean, even the NDP is, I think, a great example. The Ontario NDP knew, you know, we have to start like, you know, saying the right thing. So they begrudgingly issue the statements of support for Israel. And then uh, the longer it goes on, the more people start to show their true colors. I mean, just today, you have two uh, Ontario NDP riding associations, one in Hamilton, one in Kitchener, calling on Merritt Stiles, the leader of the Ontario NDP, to resign because they think she's been, you know, too supportive of Israel by condemning Sarah Jama, that, you know, MPP that was uh, essentially trying to erase the Jewish people from the Middle East in, in her statement. So uh, people are no longer hiding and no longer feel the need to hide uh, these very vile tendencies. Well, you know, uh, I'm in touch with a lot of people in the Jewish community, a lot of different groups. And the one good thing about it is at least it's coming out of the woodwork now. At least they're exposing themselves. Mm -hmm. And as I think I told you the last time we spoke, I've been following anti-Semitism since 2009. 
And you couldn't even say equate anti-Zionist to anti-Semitic. And now it's, you know, <laughs> it's right out there. And uh, people are not hiding their Jew hatred. And uh, uh, there's a wonderful woman who's based in, well, she's living in Israel, but she was in New York. And she was, her name is Brooke Goldstein, and she's with the Lawfare Project. And I've never heard her so... Um, despairing as she was. She spoke at a, a conference I was at a couple of weeks ago, but I never heard her the level of despair in her voice as I did yesterday on the news talking about all the anti-Semitic acts and uh, the, the ripping of posters, as you say, mm -hmm. the parades, the uh, professors speaking out, and we can only hope that these people suffer some consequences for what they're doing and maybe that'll stop them and and the donors not giving to universities i wish more would do that here in canada here in toronto uh jewish donors pulling their check checkbooks and cloak you know closing their checkbooks because that's what speaks unfortunately not uh like you were saying in the last segment they they don't care there's just yeah. no patience whatsoever unfortunately sue ann levy thank you so much keep up the great work Thank you. All right. We have been talking a lot about free speech. Now, we've been focusing on uh, one more specific context here. But as you know, this has been for me for many years, the fight that I choose to take up as the most important. It is, I've often said, my hill to die on. And it was easy to look more broadly, as we did yesterday, talking about the last few years of the COVID era, at assaults on civil liberties in Canada, from freedom of assembly to freedom of religion. But uh, at its core, freedom of speech was one of the first casualties of the COVID era, because you lost the ability to even really protest against what was happening. You couldn't uh, get together and have a protest. You, If you worked in certain fields like law or medicine, were unable to uh, speak, up your, uh, speak up about your own opinion, even if it was rooted in your professional background. So it was a very enthusiastic, um, I, I don't want to say I was excited to see it, but I was pleased given the circumstances to see so many doctors uh, put out uh, so many statements, even knowing what was likely going to await them in terms of uh, the regulators cracking down. And I think it's created a bit of a movement of these uh, dissident free speech loving doctors who have started to come together. And one of the fora in which they've done this is a conference in this idyllic part of Nova Scotia that is called, uh, just to hit you on the head with the name, the Free Speech in Medicine conference and it's actually coming up this weekend so i wanted to chat about it with the co-creator and organizer dr chris milburn uh dr milburn good to talk to you thanks for coming on today hey thanks thanks for having me so just explain the genesis of this first off um yeah so free speech was a problem in medicine <clears throat> over it's been a problem in medicine over several decades um i think uh, many people didn't recognize that that was happening, but then suddenly COVID hit and it's like, oh, wow, doctors are really not allowed to say what they think. It was very obvious during COVID. In fact, um, our, our medical regulators in most provinces put out statements to the effect that all doctors are expected to be on board with all public health measures and are, are expected, like we were told in Nova Scotia, not to be, and they use the terminology, not to be anti-maskers or anti-vaxxers, i.e. don't criticize vaccines and don't criticize masks. We, we were explicitly told that in an email missive from our college. So it, it became very overt, the, the, the 
restrictions around free speech. But truthfully, the walls were closing in on free speech for several decades with things like um, you couldn't talk about your what, what's your opinion as a physician? What do you think about the trans uh, moment that we're in in society? What do you think about harm reduction drug policy? All of these things had a right answer and a wrong answer. And you had to be very careful not to say the, the wrong thing publicly because there were there started to be consequences. Um, like myself, people can look at jccf.ca and, uh, you know, if they Google the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms in Milburn, they'll hear about my case, which happened prior to COVID. Um, and I just wrote an op-ed and I used the word criminals in the op-ed. And apparently that's a very offensive word. So a left-wing mob came after me and they complained about me to the college and I got dragged through the mud for a year behind the scenes just for writing an op-ed, which was broadly popular. A lot of people agreed with it. Some people disagreed. Um, and then COVID, like I say, COVID hit and, and myself and many other people ended up suffering consequences and losing opinions for daring to question the orthodoxy. So we just felt that it was time that we needed a venue to discuss all of those third rail nuclear waste topics that nobody wants to go anywhere near. So that's what free speech and medicine is about. It's a bug light for people who uh, think that we need to hear both sides of issues. To go to the, I guess, the status quo here, I think anyone that's followed along with what happens, what's happening to Jordan Peterson knows that regulators are, are very powerful and the, the government has kind of done something quite insidious here. And I, I think maybe it started off with noble reasons, but they say, you know, we're going to just outsource the regulation of these fields to the fields themselves. So it's, you know, the lawyers that come together and deal with the law and make the law society. It's doctors that come together and make the medical colleges. And then the government kind of just takes its hands off them. Uh, but the problem is that these regulatory bodies are incredibly powerful. They're incredibly well-staffed and, and they obviously have this culture that is not prone to respecting free speech. But let me ask you if the culture that you see in the colleges is reflective of the culture you see broadly in your field, or if everyone else is looking around at each other thinking like you, but the college has just become this mammoth that is more powerful than its members. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and actually one of the topics of discussion um, at the conference this weekend, we have a panel of lawyers who will be discussing the question, is it nature or nurture? Is, is regulation creating the political climate or is the political climate creating the legislation? And I'd say to some degree that it's just a vicious circle. They feed on each other. So a bit of both. Certainly the colleges have become very draconian. And um, as, as with many institutions, they've been kind of captured by the left-wing fringe. And there's a saying that if you're not explicitly conservative, then you will become very, very progressive. And that's John O'Sullivan's first law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what's uh, happened with the colleges, certainly. So what we've seen inside the colleges is this, what I would say, um, a, a movement to, to have more and more and more wokeness embedded in the college. Like they put out missives about Black Lives Matter and all that. And, you know, kind of the standard uh, boilerplate stuff that we see from all organizations now. But and what they what's happened is they use um, this term professionalism, and I call it I call it professionalism creep. It's my own term for it. Mm. it. Professionalism used to be you know don't get drunk and scream at your patients. That's unprofessional, and if you did that, you would understandably be hauled onto the mat. But then professionalism became a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And now professionalism is 
hey, you forgot to use the correct pronoun for somebody when referring to them in one of your reports, or you called somebody um, obese in your report, you know, they, they're 320 pounds and five foot two, and you refer to them as obese, that's unprofessional. Uh, so professionalism has crept and crept and crept to, it now means if you offend anyone hmm. with anything you say, that's unprofessional. And since you're a doctor, we can regulate you. So it goes beyond like when I wrote my op-ed that had nothing to do with my my day-to-day uh, -day practice of medicine. The complaints weren't from people who I had ever seen as patients. It was just people who didn't like what I said, but they used the medical regulatory college as a bludgeon to hammer my political opinion back with. And colleges seem only too happy to oblige. You'll, I've never heard of anybody with an opinion that was too far left wing for the colleges who they pursued, but there's all kinds of people with, um, with either centrist or, or opinions that could be considered conservative who they've gone after. Um, is that reflective of what's happening inside medicine? To some degree, yes. Medicine has become very uh, feminized and not, I don't mean just more females, but I mean feminized. Uh, so medicine used to be a bit of a cowboy free for all. You go out there, you work hard, you look after your patients best you can, a bit of a, uh, you know, an individualistic, rugged kind of profession. And now it's guideline driven and it's, there's so much about uh, physician wellness that we hear every day and physician, we're all physician burnout. We're all burnt out. We all need to pay more attention to wellness. The volume of people we see has been cut down to, take care of us better as a profession. So the profession has become are, very- Are those not real issues though? Because I've heard from male doctors as well that have talked about just in increasing workload over the years. I, I, I've just, I've never viewed those as being particularly gendered issues. Uh, yeah, true enough, uh, true enough. But certainly anybody, but either by statistics or, or by a softer measures, we are a more feminized profession for better and for worse. There's some good things that have happened with that. But, you know, ask ask a teacher if their job is easier now, ask a lawyer, ask a police officer, ask anyone in a position of authority in Canada if they feel their job is easier or more stressful in 2023 than it was, say, in 1990. And and every everything's become more stressful. But mm -hmm. uh, doctors, we like to feel I would say we like to feel particularly hard done by. Fair enough. Let me then ask you uh, about the kind of the road forward here, because I, I know that in Ontario, lawyers a few years back, and I know you have Lisa Bildy, who's speaking at your conference this year, who was instrumental in this, uh, kind of did a hostile takeover of their law society. And they had some success. They organized around one specific issue. Uh, they had a little bit less success in their most recent election. But is something like that possible within medicine? Could you mount a, a hostile takeover of the colleges? Or is it really not structured in a way where you could replicate what they try to do in the law society? It is not structured in that way. In in theory, we have some say in who regulates us. In reality, we have no say. Um, it's still unclear to me exactly how, for, for instance, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Nova Scotia has a very bad reputation. If you talk to uh, 20 doctors, you get 20 negative opinions. <laughs> um, but how anybody would change that is is beyond beyond me. I, I don't think there's any way to do that. And unfortunately, because medicine in Canada, we we are the, you know, I'm not saying it's communist, but it's communist. It, it's completely government run, completely government regulated. There's no, doctors are not independent practitioners who do their own thing. 
set their own fees, set up the way they want to practice. It's all very much regulated under the Canada Healthcare Act. So out, out of any profession, like uh, law, law is the wild west compared to medicine. Um, I, I think we're, you know, this is this is a difficult issue. You know, the in, the woke infiltration of the law society is an issue. It's way worse and way harder to solve in medicine than it is in law. You've got a, a fantastic lineup of, of speakers. I'm actually sorry I, I can't make it this year to uh, to report on it. You've got Kenneth Zucker and Amy Hamm, who've been very front and center on the, the trans issue. You've got Lisa Bildi. You've got my colleague, uh, Rupa Subramanya. You've got uh, Gad Saad. I mean, I, I'm just going through the list. You, you've got great names there. And I, I fear that all the issues that you and I have been talking about are keeping a lot of good people out of medicine. And I, I'm wondering if that's true uh, that you've heard even anecdotally, if, if people that have been looking at going to med school are kind of looking around saying, I, I don't want to be a part of this. Absolutely. It's a problem, right? So you, as, <clears throat> well, uh, just a little example to get into me medical school at Dal now, now during COVID, they went to an online interview process. Cause you know, you don't want to make anybody catch COVID. So they, there was an online interview and you could, could record a video of your answer to the question and you could record it and edit it and then finally send it when you're happy. And one of the questions was, how are you going to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion as a physician? And obviously when you're trying to get into med school, you know, you, you can go into med school and make lots of money, or you can go and do something else that'd be much less well paid. So people want to get in and they know the right answer to that. The right answer is not I don't think diversity and equity and inclusion is a priority for me. I, I think excellence is a priority and I just want to give excellent care and I want to be colorblind and you know, that, that is the wrong answer and you will not get in. So I've talked to numerous young people, students who are considering medical school and have heard and know this because it gets around pretty quick and they realize I can either act woke, which robs, robs me of my soul or I have to actually be woke. And, and those are the two choices. So it is going to drive good people out of medicine. And, and basically, we're going to have more and more and more of a, uh, an ideological bent on the people who en enter the field. And that that's happening already. I definitely see that already. So, uh, Do you anticipate this being an annual thing? Or do you hope that you could actually make this conference obsolete in the next couple of years? Oh, God, that's great. Uh, it would be lovely if we didn't need this, right? I, I have lots of other things I'd rather do. I live here in Cape Breton. I love kayak and I love cutting a little bit of wood and sitting in front of my fire. But instead, we've been slaving away for three months trying to get ready for this conference. Um, I would love to uh, put myself out of business. Do I see that happening anytime soon? No, I think the trends for free speech and medicine are still sadly they're heading in the wrong direction and uh, there's a lot more work to do uh, are we going to turn the tide to some degree uh, there are a fair amount of doctors behind the scenes who they come up to me in the mail room they make sure the door is shut and nobody's there and then they'll say <laughs> chris i really like what you're doing but i, I don't think i can really come to the conference because they just don't want to be seen to be associated with this um so hopefully over the next few years as more and more people are like, okay, this is crazy. This is crazy what we're doing. We have to do something. But hopefully more people will will grow the courage necessary to, yeah. to speak out and to start to turn the tide. Uh, not happening yet, but I'm hopeful that it will. Yeah, don't doctors get like professional development credits or something for attending conferences? Do they get those at yours? 
Uh, yeah, not official. We we couldn't get officially recognized okay. as, as an educational event. We would have had to jump through all of the woke DEI. Hoops you would have had to have like started off with the land acknowledgement to put we pronouns on the name tag abs- and you know, like basically absolutely. undermine it all, like you were just saying, right? We don't we don't meet the cut. We don't make the cut for that. Yeah. Good. Well, that makes it all the worthy. That's like real professional development right there. Screw the credits. You're going to learn a lot. All right. Let me just ask you, because I I know a lot of people uh, listening may be interested, perhaps not this year, but for the future. Is it just for the medical field or do you have kind of a a layer outside of that of people that are just interested in the field? No, not at all. Uh, So when people sign up, I ask them, it's voluntary, but I ask, you know, what's your profession? What's your interest in the conference? We have everything from we have lots of doctors, we have nurses, we have a, a strange number of, a uh, strangely large number of dentists. Uh, we have psychologists, we have co- teachers, we have contractors, we have stay-at-home moms, we have, um, you you name the profession, we have some of them coming. So it's all over the, the map in terms of the, the people's background. The one thing that everybody has in common, their interest is, they're, they're afraid that they're not getting the whole balanced story on these difficult subjects, transgenderism, drug policy, uh, f- the general issue of free speech. They, they don't feel that they're getting yeah. that, that both sides of the story and they want to hear it. So the, the people we have are just a, above average in terms of their interest, their, their, uh, their desire to dig into things and really find out they're, they're not just going to listen to CBC TV and formulate their opinion there. They want to. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, when doctors rights are suspended in this way, patients rights are as well, because if your doctor can't uh, speak their own mind, you as a patient are now denied uh, the benefit of, of what would have happened had you heard that doctor's opinion. So uh, very, very well said. Dr. Chris Milburn, one of the good ones who's going to be assembling with uh, the other good ones in Nova Scotia this weekend for the Free Speech in Medicine Conference. Hopefully we'll uh, be able to check out a future one there. But uh, Chris, thanks so much for coming on today. Have a good event. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on, Andrew. Hope to see you soon. All right. We'll talk to you soon. That does it for us for this weekend. I mentioned at the beginning that I had a little mini announcement about what's happening next week. You may have heard that there is a a new event uh, that is coming to the world. It's global. It's not globalist, though. Uh, It is called the ARC Forum. This is the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. It's being helmed by Baroness Stroud in the UK, but also involved are uh, people you might have heard of, like Leslin Lewis, the Conservative MP, and Jordan Peterson, the uh, Canadian psychologist extraordinaire that I just mentioned a a few moments ago. Uh, The ARC Forum, I mean, how it was originally explained to me is it's like the rights answer to the World Economic Forum. Now, I think that doesn't really do itself uh, any favors because I don't know if the right needs an answer to the World Economic Forum, but it's meant to be a a global assembly of movers and shakers and thinkers that are focused on ideas that uh, really focus on freedom, responsibility, and citizenship. And I was very grateful to have been invited. I know a few other Canadians are going to be there as well. So all next week, I'm going to be doing my show from London, uh, not Ontario, but London in the United Kingdom. We'll be at a, a different time uh, just to account for uh, the fact that I'll be uh, holed up in a conference room through the day. So you can catch us at 5 p.m. Eastern or 3 p.m. Mountain all next week, and we'll have reports from the ARC Forum in London. But I, I'm looking forward to it, and if any of you are, are going to be there, I will see you there. But in the meantime, thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.